Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello everyone, I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today I'm speaking with Erica Ruth Neubauer about Danger on the Atlantic, the third of her novels featuring Jane Wonderly. This series begins in Egypt in 1926, then moves to a manor house in the English countryside, and in the latest installment, a ship headed for New York. We get a good sense of the heroine, who narrates her own stories, and her central mission right away. The metallic groaning of the giant ocean liner pulling away from the dock at Southampton was nearly drowned out by the frenetic calls from both ship and shore. White handkerchiefs waved gaily from hands all around us, tiny flags of surrender giving themselves over to the voyage, and long, multicolored streamers decorated the railings and the sky over our heads. I could see the stout figure of my Aunt Millie on shore, standing next to her trim fiancé, Lord Hughes, and their daughter Lillian. Millie had offered only a perfunctory gesture before becoming impatient with the ritual, but Hughes and Lillian were still waving gaily as we pulled away. Redrose and I found ourselves in an orderly crowd on the first-class deck, each of us offering a few waves to my cousin and her father before dropping our hands. I surveyed the wealthy travelers around us, doing my best to make my interests look casual. What does a spy look like, I wonder? The question was muttered from the corner of my mouth. And now, please join me in welcoming Erica Ruth Neubauer. Hi, Erica. Thank you for agreeing to talk with me today. Thank you so much for having me. It's absolutely my pleasure to be here. Before we get into the novels themselves, tell us a bit about your career before you became a novelist and how that experience infuses your fiction. So I have a varied background, a wide and varied background. Um, I joined the military when I was 19, and I spent 11 years in... um, various forms of the Air Force, active duty, guard, and reserve. Um, I was a high school English teacher for a year, and I was also a police officer for two years. Um, And to be honest, I actually currently hold um, a private investigator's license. So I've done a lot of things um, leading up to this, but um, before I started writing my first novel, I actually was um, a reviewer of books, um, mysteries and crime fiction, 
for places like, you know, Publishers Weekly and Mystery Scene Magazine. And I did a couple of pieces for the Los Angeles Review of Books. Um, so I was really well versed in the the mystery community and, and crime fiction. Um, and I think all of those experiences have brought their own their own thing to my writing. I mean, definitely reviewing brought a lot to me. as a reviewer. I mean, I was reading anywhere between 100 and 150 books a year. Um, and then as a, you know, as a police officer and as in the military, I'm, I don't necessarily draw those experiences into my books directly, but I definitely draw in um, personalities that I have came into contact with and quirks of people. Um, and so that has been really useful. Also the discipline. I learned a lot of discipline in the military um, and that as a full-time writer is, is really helpful. So what made you decide to turn to fiction, and what appeals to you about the 1920s in particular? So mysteries and fiction um, have been a lifelong passion of mine. My dad raised me on old black and white movies and Agatha Christie and Masterpiece Mystery. Um, And so when I, somewhere along the lines, I picked up very romantic ideas about um, Egypt, specifically in the 1920s. Um, I must have seen something as a kid and it really stuck in my mind, but I had very specific ideas about elegantly dressed people, um, drinking cocktails in Egypt in a fancy hotel with, you know, slow moving fans overhead and then someone's dead in the corner. Um, and so when I decided to sit down and, and try to try my own hand at writing, um, it was just immediately obvious to me, oh, of course I'm going to set it in the 1920s in Egypt. Um, and the 1920s was also a fun period for me to write because of the the things that were happening um, in society. I really like that women were starting to push against the strictures um, of the Victorian age and, and what had come before. And like women were joining the workforce and they were going out and they were drinking and dancing and wearing their skirts short. Um, and so they had that, they were pushing against things. And I liked that. And as a writer, I also like that the 1920s, I think is really evokes specific pictures for a reader of like flappers and cocktails and prohibition and all those things. And I think it kind of immediately sets, sets a stage for a reader. Well, that sets us up nicely for uh, Murder at the Mina House, which is the first of the three novels so far that star Jane Wonderly. What takes Jane to Egypt and how does she become involved in solving a mystery there? So Jane and her aunt Millie um, have decided to take a vacation and Jane chooses Egypt because it's somewhere that she has always wanted to visit, much like myself. Um, and they are staying at the Mina House, which is a hotel that's located directly next to the pyramids. And it's a real hotel. Um, and she gets involved in, has kind of an altercation with um, a socialite, a young flapper. And then that flapper turns up dead. And, and Jane is accused of the murder. And she decides to start investigating to clear her own name. In book two, uh, Murder at Wedgefield Manor, she's back in England, but things don't go well during that visit either. What can you tell us about that book? So in this book, I really wanted to, so they, they go to England because of something that happens in book one. It was a natural progression for me to take them to England. Um, and that book starts out with Jane is taking lessons, flying lessons in a black biplane, an old moth. Um, which is really fun to write and much to her aunt's horror. Her aunt is not thrilled that she's taking flying lessons. Um, but uh, 
that book, I really wanted to discuss veterans because I am a veteran. Um, so I really wanted to focus on veterans of the First World War and some of the issues that they faced when they came back. Um, so there are a lot of veterans that work on the estate there. And one of them is is killed. Um, and Jane is asked to look into the murder along with her love interest, Redvers. So the two of them look into that murder. How would you describe Jane herself as a character, uh, her personality and her background? So Jane, um, I specifically wrote her to be like many of the protagonists that I really enjoy reading. Um, So I really love a protagonist that is spunky and smart um, and has a sassy mouth. Um, It's something that really appeals to me as a reader. So that's what I was aiming for with Jane. Um, And her background, I gave her a somewhat of a dark background. I don't think it's giving away too much to say that she has some domestic violence in her background with her first husband. And so she's not sad that he died in in the great war. Um, And I did that on purpose because as a police officer, I saw a lot of domestic violence. And so it's like, I went on a lot of those calls. Um, And so it's an issue that's really important to me. And one that I kind of wanted to highlight because it was obviously an issue then that wasn't talked about. I think it's still an issue now that isn't isn't discussed as widely and as openly as it should be. In the first two books, uh, Jane travels with her Aunt Millie, as you mentioned. Uh, they have a rather conflicted relationship, to put it mildly. Um, what's going on there? So Aunt Millie, Aunt Millie is fun to write, I will say. Um, and she is very much based on my late grandmother, Grandma Lois who was um, quite a character herself and really enjoyed stirring the pot. She really liked to, to poke the bear and like get people worked up about things. Um, so Aunt Millie is based on her. And I wrote her that way, A, because of Grandma Lois, and B, because I think it's, it was fun to have a more complicated relationship for them and to be able to play. It's fun for me to write that for them playing off of each other that way. Um, and also maybe a little bit of me exploring the dynamics that I saw within my own family between my grandmother and, you know, her children. Can you tell us a bit more about Aunt Millie herself, what her background is? So I don't want to give too much away about the first book if anyone hasn't read it, but um, Aunt Millie is also a widow um, and she was very fond of Jane's first husband. It was her nephew. Um, And so Jane has never told Aunt Millie about what, what he was like behind closed doors and about the abuse that she suffered. Um, So I think that actually adds an even further um, layer to their relationship because Jane's not going to tell her about that. Um, And Millie is just kind of an old battle axe who is constantly haranguing Jane about getting married again. And um, yeah, just kind of a pain, but she does have a good heart underneath all of it. She also drinks a lot. Um, yeah, she really does, especially in the first <laughs> she book. Really does. She really does. And I will say my grandma Lois really drank a lot also, but Millie got an upgrade to whiskey. My grandma was more into um, jug wine was really where grandma Lois was at. Quite early in Murder at the Mina House, uh, Jane encounters a man known mostly as Redverse. Uh, it would be a shame to give away his last name. Um, by the time we get to Danger on the Atlantic, they're traveling together. Uh, so tell us about him, both who he is and hints of where things stand between him and Jane that don't, because it's true, we don't want you to give away too much. 
So Redvers, I wrote as purposely just kind of a mysterious character, but um, a definite love interest. In the first book, I think you're not quite sure where he falls, if he's going to be a good guy or if he's, you know, whatever, whatever he is. You're not, I wanted you to not be quite sure of him. Um, And, and because of Jane's past, she has a, has complicated relationship with her feelings towards Redvers. She's attracted to him, but does not want to be. Um, he is basically, is it too much to say if he's, if I say he's a, basically an agent for the British crown? I don't think that's too much. I mean, it, people can figure that out eventually. It's, it's, um, it's clear from the, yeah, it's clear from the back of this book that, that he is. So. Yeah. So by the third book, he, um, he's on an official assignment. It's the first time that Jane is being brought in officially to work with him. Um, and she does not want to mess. She wants to prove that she can do a good job. Um, and so they're actually posing as a married couple in the third book, which was really fun to write as well. Um, and things, things are well with them. I think that's all I'm going to say about where they stand <laughs> with the two of them. That's fine. I think we just wanted to, you know, sort of sketch the broad outlines of things. We don't want to get into too much detail. But I do want to mention for the sake of listeners that there are large parts of these books that are that are just hilarious. You know? <laughs> We're talking about the dark sides, and there certainly are dark things in there. But a lot of the books are just a lot of fun to read. Thank you. Uh, so let's turn to the boat. Uh, what are Jen's first impressions of the boat? And and we should emphasize that this is like a this is not like a fishing boat. This is you know a big ocean liner that is a sister to the Titanic. Yes. So um, I think Jane's really impressed with the luxury and the grandeur of the boat. It's the it's the Olympic, um, which was a real ship, and like I said, this is a sister sister ship to the Titanic. Um, which I did purposely for two reasons. One was that as a kid, I was kind of obsessed with the Titanic. Um, and so it was fun for me to research a ship that was essentially the same. Um, and the second was that it, the research was, was there's so much out there that it was easy for me to find, you know, detailed pictures and descriptions of both the first and the second class quarters and all of the rooms on board. So everything I write about, um, I probably found a picture of. Um, and I was asked recently and they were like, so like all the rooms and I was like, yeah, like the Turkish baths that I talk about, those were, that was really on board that ship. Um, and in fact, I, I think I killed someone in it just so that I had an excuse <laughs> to have them go, go to it. Cause I was like, it's incredible. I have a Turkish bath on board this ship. It's crazy. It um, really is. I mean, then there are fireplaces and all kinds of things you wouldn't yeah, expect. Not at all. So, um, yeah, but that's for me part of the fun of research. Is I love I love digging in and, and learning about a new location and, and and uncovering all that stuff. And it also gives a little um, frisson of um, of terror, you know, because we know what happened to the Titanic, and and uh, there Jane is, right? <laughs> she doesn't know that yeah. it couldn't happen to her too. I mean, if we only know that in retrospect. And besides, it's fiction. Maybe you know, you maybe the author decided to do something. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, as Jane mentions early on, uh, she is looking. They are looking for a spy. Um, a spy for whom, and how do they expect to find him or her? So, it's a spy for Germany. Um, and I literally came up with this storyline by googling what happened in 1926. 
Um, and I somewhere somewhere came up with along or came upon a, an article um, about Robert Goddard, who was a physicist, and he was doing um, super secret tests of liquid propelled rockets. Um, and later he claimed that the Germans had stolen his plans for it um, to use in World War II. And so I was like, oh, so what if a German had come over to steal those plans? Um, and so that's what gave me the idea of, because I knew I wanted to set it on a transatlantic cruise because it's the golden age of cruising and what a cool you know, setting. Um, but that's what gave me, that's what prompted the, the having a German spy and they need to suss him out. So um, I, you know, have a couple of suspects and their job is to basically investigate all of them and see which suspect it is that is the, the spy for Germany and, and is planning to come over and steal the plan. Now, as if unmasking spy weren't enough for one voyage, uh, Jane quickly becomes involved in helping another passenger who claims to have lost her husband uh, on a boat. No, never mind. Uh, tell us a bit about Vanessa Fitzsimmons and why Jane decides to help her find this missing man. So Jane is on board or on, on deck when they're pulling away from the dock and she sees Vanessa and, um, and the man and is, they're very affectionate with each other. So she notices them. Um, and later Jane comes across Vanessa and, and she's trying to get the crew to help her find her husband because he's gone missing and the crew don't really seem to believe that he's missing initially. And then they don't believe that he was ever actually there. Um, and Jane gets involved, I think, a lot because of her past. She's not willing to see another woman be essentially gaslit. Um, and so she decides to step in and and help Vanessa. And Vanessa's a, a complicated character. You're not really quite sure whether whether she is hysterical or and whether she's doing it for for drama and for attention or whether or not or whether she really is being gaslit, essentially. Yes, that's true. We don't, we're never completely sure. Um, but you also raise an interesting point that I wanted to get to. The crew of the ship are extremely lackadaisical about this. I mean, they really seem to think that she's just hysterical. I mean, how you can imagine a husband <laughs> that yeah. you've lost is, is a pretty amazing thing. But it does get to this sort of underlying thing, which is that although views of women are changing, they're still pretty conservative by modern standards. So could you say something about that? Yeah, I think it was, I mean, even though society today was pushing, or women were pushing against, you know, the strictures, they, there were still very old-fashioned ideas about what women should and shouldn't be doing. And um, honestly, for me, gaslighting and especially um, the whole idea of, like, hysteria, the whole time where men could essentially just commit their wives because, you know, they weren't cooking right or because, you know, they were upset about something and, um, they could essentially just have them committed. Um, and I think that's terrifying. That has always really been terrifying for me, as, as well as the whole idea of gaslighting. Um, I love those old movies where that's the um, the premise. Um, so that's what inspired this. Now, as you mentioned, they're traveling on the Olympic, and uh, among the perks of being... Um, on this very elaborate, luxurious boat uh, is that they have fi formal dining with assigned seats, um, except that in Jane and Redford's case, they wind up traveling uh, or being assigned to a table with Miss Eloise Bauman and her sister and brother-in-law. And it's, I mean, these interactions are just wonderful. Um, 
for readers, but not so much for Jane. <laughs> so tell us about that. Miss Miss Eloise does not ever stop talking. Just not once does she ever stop talking, and she has very grandiose ideas about herself and what her abilities are. Um, and honestly, that is because I I have sat at tables with people like that, <laughs> and that is where that is where that character comes from. Um, is my own experiences. So. It was very fun to write, though. Not fun to sit through, but very fun to write. Yes. No, I, I have a, um, a notebook in my office that says, you know, be careful, a writer at work. <laughs> Don't annoy her or she'll put you in a book and kill you. <laughs> very, it's very true. It is very cathartic also if you're the person. Yes, very much so. So at the beginning of the novel, uh, Jane and Redfords have three candidates for the potential spy they're seeking. I'm not asking you to give any detailed description of them, but just specifically, who are they uh, on the cruise? And what is it, you know, what is the main reason that the British government suspects them, regardless of whether or not they're actually guilty? So Heinz Naumann, I'll start with, because he is German. So he, um, you know, he's a German man coming over. Keith Brubacher is the band leader, and Edward Banks runs the um, photography area on board. Um, guests could come and rent a camera, and then they could have their film developed on board. And he runs that um, whole area. And so each of these passengers, there's a reason why you know it's it's possible that they're the one that's coming over. They each have a little bit of a shady background or, or enough going on that. It's it's strange that they're that they're there on board and they might be the one. Because they're traveling on an ocean liner, um, it's a kind of closed mystery. So, what does the setting contribute to the mystery itself? I think not only this one, but all of them have a bit of a closed setting, um, and I like that. I like doing that. It's one of the reasons I picked the Mina House is because it's. So far, it was so far removed from Cairo. It's not anymore. Um, And the manor house is a little bit removed because it's out in the country. Um, And then this one, there's literally nowhere to go except the the one time that they stopped in, I think, Cherbourg. Um, That was the one opportunity for anyone to get on or off board the ship. Otherwise, it's it's, you're here or you're in the water somewhere. Um, And I I like having all of our suspects in one place and I like having it I think it adds drama to them having to work around where that other person is especially in such a, a small space I mean a ship is a large space but um and with the ship it also added some extra elements because there was still an upstairs downstairs element so I have some characters who were in second class um and would have been frowned upon for them to come up to first class um, so that added an extra layer, I think. And there are characters who can't be um, tracked at all, except when they're um, on duty, because the ship's quarters, the, the the crew's quarters, are not open to passengers. Uh, are there particular characters or incidents that we haven't discussed that are favorites of yours, either in this or the two previous novels? You know, I really liked... Um, in the first novel, I actually really liked Charlie and Deanna, the card sharks. 
um, that were vaudeville actors. And I'm not ruling out seeing them make a reappearance in future books someday. Um, I just really have a, have a soft spot for those two. But everybody else, I think, you know, yeah, I think just those two are the ones that I would like to see again. I mean, obviously Millie um, and Lord Hughes and Lillian will be popping in and out of, of these books and future books. Um, but as far as like side characters, I think those, those two are my favorites. And what about the research? The 1920s are not like, you know, my area, which is the 16th century, where half the time you can't find anything. But how do you go about it? Um, so I am a I am a tried and true book nerd. So I immediately when I'm like, I don't know something about a subject, my natural impulse is to collect a bunch of books about it. Um, so I, I did that with each one of these books. I, I would order books um, and then read before I would start drafting the novel. Um, and I would read about both the setting and about um, social history and just things that were happening at the time. And I like to do that before I even start drafting because a lot of times it gives me interesting, enough interesting pieces that I can use them for backstories for side characters um, or it'll spark entire characters um, doing that research. Um, so I do a lot of reading for both, actually all three, well, for the first two, I was able to find a lot of um, photos and for Egypt, I was able to find a lot of video on YouTube of the 1920s in Egypt, which was crazy to me. It blew my mind for, um, for whatever reason. And um, I was able to draw a lot from that. So from what it, from what it would have looked like. Um, and like the Mina House is a real hotel. And I was able to find an out of print book about the Mina House. And it had a lot of information about the 1920s at the Mina House, which is incredibly helpful. And I had pulled a lot of information from that. Um, and so same with the other two, I was able to find resources about what the 1920s were like there at that time. Um, the, this one, Danger on the Atlantic, I found an out-of-print book that um, an old sea captain had written about his time as, on um, various Cunard cruise ships. Um, and a lot of it was very dry. But I also got, but I did get good information out of there about like, what it was like to be a crew member on board those ships. Um, and so that's how I like to do it. I like to do a lot of reading first um, before I sit down and draft a novel. And then for all of these so far, I have done an, either done the trip or have been to the country and was able to, to pull from my experience there. Um, and so by the time I actually go do the research trip, I have a much better idea of what I need to know because um, I don't know what I don't know until I write it. So for Egypt, um, I had the whole book written. I went to Egypt. I did the things. Um, I had a wonderful guide who answered all of my questions about the 1920s. Um, and by the time I got back, I only had to change one or two things that I hadn't, hadn't gotten right. Um, so, yeah. So you did get to Egypt. What was that like? I did. It was, it was honestly such a bucket list trip for me. Um, probably my top place that I have always wanted to go. And it was amazing. It was everything I wanted it to be. Um, and it was, I can't remember what year it was because I have completely lost time, lost track of time and years. Um, but there weren't that many tourists there. I think it was a couple of years after Arab Spring. So, but Egypt was really suffering for tourists, um, which worked in our favor because like a lot of the sites, there weren't, you know, just 
swarms of people and we were able to really see things. Um, it was fabulous. I, I really loved it. And did you go to an English country house as well? I did not, but I have been to England several times and have spent time in the countryside. Um, so that is actually the only location that is not a real location. I made up that manor house. I took kind of elements of a bunch of different manor houses that I researched and kind of um, made a Frankenstein house out of it. Um, but yeah, that's the only one that is not an, a real location. It seemed very realistic to me. Um, I yeah. Um, so I suppose it helps a little bit that all three novels are, are set in 1926. So at least the external events aren't changing all that much. Yes. Yes. I have kept them pretty close together. Um, although I think number five, book five, will, fi will finally move into the next year. <laughs> ah, well, I'm glad. To <laughs> I'm glad to hear that it's going to continue like that. Um, what would you like people to take away from Danger on the Atlantic and its predecessors? Um, I think I'd like people to take away that these are meant to be fun and totally escapist. That's what I, I wrote them as. I followed the advice, write what you want to read, and that's what I wanted to read. Um, and I, I want them to be just, you know, a fun escape to a new place. So each book is going to be set in a new location. Um, yeah. So this one has just come out. Uh, it sounds, since you mentioned book five, is book four already complete? Book four, I am in the middle of revisions, but yes, it is, it is nearly complete. It is called Intrigue in Istanbul. And then um, I have a contract for two more after that. Oh, wonderful. Um, can you give us any hints? I mean, that, it's a great title. Thank you. So Istanbul, they are they immediately after book three, after Danger in the Atlantic, they get to Boston and they immediately turn around and head for Istanbul because she is looking for her father. And her father is seeking the Sultan's heart. Um, and the Sultan's heart is a real artifact that um, to this day has not been found, I don't believe. Um, it in the, I believe it's the 1400s, Suleiman the Magnificent, he was the ruler of the Ottoman Empire, and he died on the battlefield. And so his viziers prepared his body for burial, but they removed all of his internal organs, and they buried them on site where he died. And um, his body was eventually taken back to, to Istanbul and buried, but um, the heart has never been found. And it's kind of has like, now it has like these, you know, legends and mysteries surrounding it. Um, so that is what her father is seeking, and they are seeking him. Ah, well, that should be really interesting. Um, I've never been to Istanbul, but I've always wanted to go. It's such a fascinating culture. It is, and the city is beautiful. It's really a, it's a lovely city. Well, thank you so much for sharing your time with us today, Erica. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much for having me. This was wonderful. And thank you for listening to our podcast. Once again, I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction, the podcast channel on the New Books Network. And today I've been talking with Erica Ruth Neubauer about Danger on the Atlantic and its predecessors in the Jane Wonderly series. Find out more about her at ericaruthneubauer.com. That's one word. Like us on Facebook, search for NB Historical Fiction, and follow us on Twitter at New Books Network. 
If you do, you'll see each time we post a new interview. You can find out more about me and my books at www.cplesley.com, where I upload expanded posts about the interviews and in general discuss history, historical fiction, and the rapidly changing publishing industry. Goodbye until my next conversation about historical fiction on the New Books Network.